Welcome to Navigating Change, the education podcast from Tybel Inc. I'm Pete Wright, and I am here once again with Howard Tybel. Howard. Pete, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, my friend. It's good to talk to you. Uh, we have a great topic today, don't we? Yeah, not only a great topic, we have a great guest. I'm, I'm so excited. excited. It's another one. You come back to, to me from a conference <laughs> and you're you're giddy with excitement. Giddy. Giddy. How do we get him on the show? I don't know. Elliot Mays, he's a futurist, an analyst, a speaker, a writer. He's editor of the online newsletter Learning Trends by Elliot Macy, in addition to a dozen books. Head of the Macy Center, a think tank focused on how organizations can support learning and knowledge in the workforce. And he leads the learning consortium of over 200 global organizations cooperating on the evolution of learning strategies. Not only that, he's a Broadway producer behind Kinky Boots and Godspell and more. He is, is, in short, deeply invested as a leader in our field of education. And we are thrilled to have him on the show today. Elliot Macy, welcome to Navigating Change. Well, thank you, and I'm thrilled to be here. And uh, as a producer, uh, I'm always up for the surprise of the moment. So hit me with your best shots. Good there spirit, we go. sir. So, Elliot, the thing that I'm I'm deeply thinking about more and more is this disconnect uh, or this recognition that you talk about, and I've heard you talk about, is teaching and learning. And this is where I want to start. And and so let me give you a very quick anecdote. In a podcast we recently did with Brad Allenby, which he's the uh, Arizona State professor, he was talking about, if we think about companies looking for electrical engineers, and you think about institutions being structured to serve that need, structurally, process-wise, the kinds of people we bring in to do this teaching, uh, we can serve those kind of short-term mission, be able to get them out there and make electrical engineers who they are. If you think about accelerating change and what happens in a four-year period and the fact that a professor of electrical engineering today, four years from now, what he knows is really not the asset. It's their ability to help students navigate. And we need to have a new way of thinking about shepherding learners through a process. So I want to start with that premise that I think we've got this increasing disconnect between who faculty are and what they, what they bring and what learners need. Let's start at the beginning. Um, I certainly think there's a distinction between teaching and learning, just as there is a distinction between cooking and eating. You know, I can cook a wonderful dish, but it doesn't mean, A, that the learner wants it, B, that the learner will eat it all, or C, that the learner will have had the same experience that we thought they would have. Uh, so you need, you need great cooks and chefs, but ultimately, uh, the, the edge point is what does the person eat? Well, the same thing is true in, in teaching uh, and, and in learning. I think it's enormously important that we have people who have a, either background in a subject, our subject matter experts, our, our, our faculty, whatever we want to, to call them, that they are there to articulate great content, to set, for me, tough assessment standards so that the person gets to see it, and that they are there to sometimes deliver, but increasingly in this world of, of users being more um, empowered, that they are also there to interact with the learners 
And in some instances, they are more like the librarian is at the library who knows how to get you to something but doesn't know what it is. Or in many cases, they become a, um, they're kind of a tour guide. You know, they are, they're running a, a tour. So if I take people on a tour of New York City, which I love doing, I have my model, but suddenly somebody says, oh, there's the M&M store. Oh, right across the street is the other store. And suddenly we're going to take 20 minutes on chocolate stores when I was going to do just a little bit. So if we allow the learner, bluntly, we can't allow the learner will will push that she or he wants to drive their own learning. Now, institutions or faculty or teachers have to recognize and embrace that in some very, very different ways because our, our ultimate measure is not what did I teach. Our ultimate measure is what did they learn, but in the workplace area, what can they actually do when they get back to their job? And uh, and that's the shift. In your work and you're out there and you're meeting with education leaders, is there a greater receptivity to this? Or are you still finding that we need to get better at finding a way to get in there with them and provide some guidance to make that shift? I think everybody wants to be successful as a teacher or faculty member. And many of our universities have what we would call scholar teachers, that they have an area of scholarship and they have an area in which they are also a teacher. Our dilemma is that we become prisoners of our own ritual. So you'll mm. hear the professor say, she'll say, I'm going to go and I'm today going to be talking about uh, RFID. And I have such a funny story about RFID. I'm going to give them my funny story. And sure enough, She's going to go in and they're going to laugh because she has a ritual that she teaches that story. It may yeah. be wonderful, but I always say, well, do you have a two minute version of that story? Or, yeah. you, you know, <laughs> or if it was a really good story, can you send it as an email and I can listen to it before I get there? Yeah. So our dilemma is that our teachers are all wanting what you both and I want. We want the light bulb to go off. But our rituals bring us to doing things the way we've always done them. And the mistake that we make is that it's efficient and scalable. What you actually find if you go into a class with that story and suddenly you're about to begin and somebody raises their hand and says, I know you're about to tell me a really good story, but let me tell you what happened to me yesterday at the mall when my phone went off when I entered the Apple store. And suddenly that person with that perfect story a better story happens and it it happens from the learner. So now am I threatened to, can I say as I would, Oh, no problem. Go onto the Maisie site. I've got my story on video or do I shut it down? Because I believe that teaching it my way is more important than dynamically allowing learners to learn their way. Or do you record that student on your phone saying that story and put that on the Maisie site so that everybody can see that Bingo. there's a better story? This, I think, is the cultural conflict that we're dealing with in the classroom right now. One, uh, as a, you know, I'm a subject matter expert in my field, 
so what, right? That the, uh, you know, with all the resources that students have, what I need to get better at is teaching. That's the skill I need to get up to speed on. I can count on my students, frankly, to keep me abreast of the latest and greatest in my field. They're bringing me new journal articles. They're writing case analyses. They're keeping me very well educated in my field. They have to also learn from the other side, just as I'm learning how to better guide them and be that tour guide, they have to learn from the other side that uh, that conflict in their head of expecting me to know everything is not the 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 ultimate panacea of their classroom right. experience, right? Mm. Yeah, I have a friend who uh, is a um, head of digital learning at MIT, and he, by the way, has background in RFID. He had a conversation with the president there at MIT and said, you know, we think that the thing that's most important are lectures, but it's not. People want to be on this campus with great colleagues, with awesome faculty. They want to be in labs. They want to be doing stuff. But we mistake to think our product is lectures. And in fact, we know that as the learner gets deeper into stuff, they want to spend less time in lectures. They want to be doing things. And I think we have to both get to that same page. You know, I think the faculty member needs to increasingly become a facilitator of experiences, which, by the way, get to their and other people's knowledge. The learner, and this is the toughest thing. If I run my class as a lab, you're going to work twice as hard than if I run it as a lecture. You're going to be assessed more than my simple little test at the end. You're going to fail more on the way to success in what we're talking about. So the learner's got to be prepared that they can't just go on uh, semi-shutdown student mode. Yeah, that's that's the mistake, right? Sometimes they, they go in and they think, oh, yeah, I love labs. I could I don't have to do any pre-work. I can show up and just do what I'm told. That is not the case. No, no, no. I, I make them sweat. I yeah. make them sweat. A lab, they ought to sweat. A lab, things should be breaking. A lab, you should be challenging them. You could even yell at each other because it's a lab, you know. But, you know, you can also turn that on its head and say that the very experience of failure mm-hmm. gets gets increased even for the professor yes. because if if the measure of my success is I'm going to provide this data, test you, as opposed to I'm going to give up some control, right. allow you to engage, I'm going to have to stay connected in a way that I don't have to as an expert with data that then you get tested right. and then I do my, you know, part B in my curriculum. Right. So, I think what you're uncovering here in a really powerful and important way is that the impact here is is so great that we we have to be able to step back and understand what this new model is right. and what does it mean to navigate that as a teacher and as a learner. But, the, but let me challenge you a little bit. Now I'm challenging you in, a, in agreement. Um, let's not fall into the trap that we now have a new way of teaching or a new thing, because we go through these episodic edugasms along the way. You know, <laughs> it's going to be second life, or it's all going to be a MOOC, or you're going to put on a VR okay. helmet, and it's none of that. Bluntly learning from back when we gathered around the fire near the caves to now has been a matrix blend of learning in a variety of ways with expertise 
with assessment, with peers, and with independence. So what, what, the way I talk to faculty is we're not talking about new math. What we're really talking about is let's mix it up. Let's do the stuff that you're really good at. Yeah. And bluntly, maybe we'll put that, that on a videotape. Let's do the stuff you never had the time to do, which is the lab. And then and this is the toughest piece. Let's decide that you're going to be a learner at the same time that you're a teacher, Love which it. means the each time you teach, it's going to change because they're new, new learners, the content has changed, and you've changed. But the risk, bluntly, the risk, I think a lot, I mean, MOOCs are the best example of that. So somebody said, oh, well, it'd be great. We could have one course with 82,000 people and think not of happiness, think of revenue. That's where, now, that's where that goes, yeah. Yeah, but but that was that was just new new farcism, you know. On the other hand, what we're doing right now is the most provocative thing. Three people in three different areas gathering together for 30 minutes and having an interactive element that's captured, edited, and reused. Now, we don't have a cute name for it like MOOC, but it's part of the matrix of what we as educators, as researchers learn. And I'll say one more thing, and I think it's an interesting one. And I served on a board of a college, Skidmore College, for 10 years. The biggest mistake we make is that subject matter experts will always be good faculty. Some of them will not. And I love the idea that there are some people who are so smart in what they know. Let's not, let's not have them have to be the teacher. Let's do what you're doing to me. Let's interview them. Let's bring them in as a resource. But we always make the assumption that we have one size fits all. Yeah. You're, a, you're a PhD in X and you're gonna be a great teacher and guess what, you're gonna be a wonderful assessor. I'm not sure that's always yeah. true. So here's what I take away from your reflection on the way I talked about it affecting faculty is we now have to create a new model. Let's step into the conversation and figure out, as you said, how to mix it up. Mm -hmm. That what you heard me say, and I think we can fall into this trap, and this is how it can be heard, is, all right, that's not working. So now we have to come up with a whole new approach as opposed to there's a bunch of things that are working, but we need to add something into the mix. And the underlying mix that I'm hearing is how do we have productive conversation? Right. And, 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 and there's a change. One of the changes is that we're doing something now we didn't do before. We're data rich. So I want to start every program at a college with an in-depth assessment. I want to do an incredible assessment. In fact, it's going to be almost the same one I did at the end of the semester. Why? Because then every learner can see where she is on her dashboard. We have see where the needles are. And the professor or the faculty member can see where the whole group is on that. So we want to become more data rich. We also want to skip away from what I think is one of the great fallacies of, of learning, which is we learn with a single dunk into the content. You know, look, anybody who's a parent has not taught their kid how to talk, walk, or go to the bathroom in one lesson. <laughs> it's, right. it's 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 a repetitive process. Yes. But, yes. but our institutions are into content spraying. You know, that's right. It's now the third week of the geography course, so I'm going to spray you with the you know the nature of the Appalachian Mountain Trail. 
Well, guess what? If you do a good job on the fifth week, I'm going to come back. I was thinking about that Appalachian Trail because we never learn in one cycle. We learn in a multi-cycle, but we don't have a archaeology in our classrooms to honor multi-cycle learning. I want to use this to introduce the next conversation with you, which often gets talked about by uh, administrative leaders as, as, as the business model. But it's broader than the business model. It's really about the overall, the academic model, the, the way we go about executing. And I've been studying uh, with Fernando Flores, mm-hmm. who is a philosopher, teacher, business leader, and he's been talking recently about this idea of contingencies that we need to be paying attention to that are disruptive. If you think about Uber as a new model for mobility, right, it mm-hmm. came out of some contingencies that somebody was paying attention to, you know, the ubiquity of cell phone use, the reliability of GPS, our trust in digital payment platforms, and finally, a dissatisfaction with traditional taxi service. And if you take any one of those out of the equation, Uber probably wouldn't have risen. But with those four things that showed up, something was able to get introduced from the outside. And you could even argue that the taxi service industry had the capability and were not paying attention, which points to this idea about can you really reinvent yourself from the inside? It points to the fact that Uber Rose or Airbnb is that it's only outside of the industry that you're living are you able to see these kind of contingencies. I have two, two perceptions. One is we inevitably teach the way we were taught to by our good and our bad teachers. So one of the places we have to begin is the teacher has to experience as a learner the styles that we hope they will now adapt as a teacher, which means they've got to take a course online. They've got to be in a lab as a learner. So that's the first one. The second one is that the institution uh, has to value not the change in process, but the differential outcome of that. So I would argue if we went to the assessment model that I've described, that every class started with an assessment, more students would drop out of the class at the beginning who will never succeed. That when they see the delta between where they are and they'll take courses, they will succeed. Net result, faster graduation, fewer failures, less time remediating students who aren't having trouble learning, they're in the wrong learning activity. So we've got to accept, and I keep using the word archaeology, that a campus or a school or workplace area, do we have an archaeology that allows the kind of innovation to get to the outcome? Now, I am agnostic about how people teach. If somebody was a really, really good, you know, medieval chanter, and the people there could pass the course, chant away. You know, <laughs> I don't give a crap whether they lecture or they mook or they buzz. Yeah. I just want them to be in an environment where, and this is the word we don't often use, I want to optimize the learning 
that happens there. I, I wonder how well that that uh, fits with how people, not how they teach, but how they administer, because that does not jive with the practical reality of the week-long drop period. Don't let your students drop. Please help them figure out. That doesn't fit our profitability model. Well, let me give you the biggest example. And I ranted for 10 years uh, as a board member, and I worked with Arnie Duncan at the, at the Department of Ed, and it's not going to happen, and forget it ever happening with our new Secretary of Education. But... Uh, you know, what I believe is the biggest immediate gap, not the largest, but you see, is assessment and grading. You can go and get a PhD in a subject matter area and you can become a PhD in economics, in physical therapy, in mathematics, in, in violin music. But bluntly, you don't have to show that you know how to teach. So we've assumed that you'll gain that in process which maybe is true, but the area where you're not gonna gain it in process is how you grade or assess. It, there's actually an art and a science to building a test, to doing a curve grade of being predictive versus formulative. And our institutions, our higher ed institutions, have been agnostic, if not atheistic, about assessment. Mm. So. You know, um, if I really want the end result to be higher mastery at a, a level of satisfaction, at a speed in economics that were, then I have to enter the assessment business in a totally different way. And I either have to give my faculty assessment skills or, and now I'm going to push everyone's envelope, maybe the faculty shouldn't be doing the assessment. You know, maybe they should go to the assessment bureau uh, to do that. Uh, because bluntly, now we'll really check whether or not Professor Schmidt has succeeded because Schmidt doesn't get to evaluate students of Schmidt. You know, yep, it's, it's a... Uh, That's bold, you know, man. Bold words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but ultimately, the marketplace is going to push to that because my friends who work at American Express, at McDonald's, at Google, they're not interested in your traditional transcript. What they're interested in is your readiness to do complex tasks. Well, see, that gets that yeah. gets to this next point, which really brings us back to what kind of contingencies need to be in place for there to be a recognition that we do need to change from the inside. You used to be a senior person at IBM. And when IBM was successful at selling mainframes, there was no reason to change the business model. It's only when the mainframe business fell <laughs> out that it really was about change or die. So the question is, what needs to be in place for institutions so that these kinds of things really start accelerating, the kind of changes? Because my experience right now is it, it's not, they're not there. Well, they I, still I, have a yeah. model that's successful. They can still enroll, get them in, get them out, yeah. and they're managing their en enrollment in a certain way and, and balancing their budgets. Well, it's true when there isn't an alternative. You know, so I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur and I'm a capitalist, okay? So I believe in alternatives. I believe the marketplace decides. So you used Uber as an example. I came over here in a nice yellow cab. I enjoy driving them, except now the yellow cabs have an app that I was able to, the moment I get in, type in the code and it automatically tracked it and it pays to my credit card. And my staff got an instant PDF with that. So 
the yellow taxi companies had a change because Uber arrived. Without Uber, they never would have made the change. Now, I would argue that our colleges operate in a limited monopoly and our faculty operate in a limited monopoly. If you have one teacher of advanced statistics, she may not have a lot of stress to get better. You put three in there and suddenly she's going to be fighting for FTEs. Um, so I actually believe we're going to start to see alternatives. I think we're going to see increasingly employers say the construct of a degree is nice, but here are 16 readinesses. And if you have that, I'll hire you as a software engineer at Google. But you're going to have to pass and demonstrate those readinesses. And by the way, your teacher won't do that. And at some point, some kid from whatever professor is going to go and ask, how well does the professor get me to those readinesses? Or should I go to readinesses online? Or if I have the money, should my parents send me to a readiness Caribbean camp this summer? You know, <laughs> but I'm saying once there are alternatives, the yeah. changes will happen. But I go back to where I started. The ultimate one, because this is the humanist in me, there's a high school in Denver, which the Gates Foundation gave just a little bit of money to, but it's a science high school where kids get into it randomly. What's really provocative there is every teacher there must, every semester, enroll as a student in a course at that high school, Geometry 111, Russian, and they sit with their other students struggling through the homework. Love it. It's the best school I have ever been to. Well, what does that and do? Let's just unpack that for a second. By by putting by putting teachers in that mode, what what happens? Well, they it's where we started. The best way you change as a teacher is to be challenged as a learner. I I was at Harvard and I did a a briefing for some faculty and I said when you do a video, keep it under three minutes. Oh my gosh, I did one that's 90. I said, try three. And literally I had them take out their phones and do a three minute video. The first four were horrible. By the time they did the fifth, they go, I'll never go back to 90 minutes. <laughs> so I really believe I love we have it. to be experimental. Yes. We have to be evidence-based, but we have to give the faculty member who once again, teaches the way they were taught. I love it. An opportunity to become a learner, and then they will come and try a few things different and not package it as drum roll, new college 102. Yeah. It's it's not a fad. It's an economic shift in the marketplace to do what you're both talking about. Yeah. Align with the align with the changing realities. This is a, a fantastic uh, conversation, and I think your this this discussion about the the uh, the effect of evolving requirements for each of us, faculty, administrators, students, to understand the learning model is a sign of hope. There is reason to be hopeful in spite of uh, of the darkness. I just want to hang my hat on that for just a minute. Uh, Elliot right. Maisie, uh, thank you so much for your time and attention today joining us. Where would you like people to—I I, I listed all of the—just a fraction, I think, of the things you're involved in. Where should people go to find out more about you? Well, just go to www.maisie.com. From there, you get on to our—we uh, have a free newsletter called Trends. And if you dig farther enough, you'll find that Broadway shows, including uh, The Great Comet, American in Paris, Kinky Boots, and Zoom, Antasia, and 
significant other are wonderful places if you want to forget about what's going on in the world <laughs> and have a oh my great God. emotional experience come to Broadway. You yeah. are a full-service organization, Elliot That's Maisie. right. Full service. When you want to engage, here's how you engage. When you want to disengage, you can come here, too. Come to Broadway. You got <laughs> That's it. That's right. <laughs> Elliot Macy, thank you so much for your time. Howard, uh, always a treat to talk to you, my friend. Fantastic conversation today. Yeah, really. Thank you so much, Elliot. This is this is at the center of the kind of conversations I think more and more academic and administrative leaders need to be in, especially around this. Focus on the question and give up your point of view and see what we can uncover together in a creative way. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Outstanding. Thank you. On behalf of Elliot Maisie and Howard Teibel, I'm Pete Wright. We'll catch you next time right here on Navigating Change, the education podcast from Teibel Inc. <laughs>